0: Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jordan Green. Welcome to 2017, right? Um, and so as, as Alan said, who, uh, who rung in the new year? Who stayed up and rung in the new year? All right, lots of hands. Well, you're at the second service, so there's no excuse for falling asleep. You've had plenty of time to rest. Uh, but I'm excited to preach this sermon because how often is it that you get to preach on the first day of a new year? And I I saw something on Facebook I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Maybe you can relate because I get the feeling from people that last year wasn't great. And we just want to be done with it. And maybe you're a radical optimist who sees the new year as a fresh start. This year will be different. Or maybe you're a realist who thinks nothing really changes but the date I put on my checks for those that still write checks. But either way, it's exciting to come to the scriptures together on this first day of the new year so that we might hear together the constant word of the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open and turn to Matthew chapter 21. And as you're turning there, let me just say that if you're new with us or if you're like me and you can't remember what you did two days ago, we spent over 40 weeks in Matthew last year looking at the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And in that time, Matthew was in many ways showing us what the truly good life looks like through the life of Jesus. And as we return to Matthew this morning, we will spend the next 17 weeks looking at Jesus' final week on earth where we will see how this good life is made possible for all. You see, Matthew spends nearly 30% of the gospel telling us about his holy week. He's trying to get us to slow down, to take it all in, Because he is convinced, as we should be, that this is the most significant week in human history. More significant than the week Johannes Gutenberg finished the printing press. More significant than the signing of the Declaration of Independence. independence. Even more significant than the week I was born. Can you believe it? (laughs) Since the foundation of the world, there hasn't been a more extraordinary week than the one found in Matthew 21 through 28. So we want to spend time walking this journey with Jesus to Easter. And starting today with two stories Matthew provides about the first day of this last week, commonly known as the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. You've likely heard this story before. But if not, after what Walt just read with with us, you would agree that this is one of the most bizarre scenes. John Calvin himself says that it would have been a ridiculous display to witness. And it's okay to smile and to laugh when you read scripture, I sure do, because here we have, when you think about it, here we have Jesus hijacking someone's donkey, becoming the center of a parade where half the people call out for salvation and the other half are looking around like, what's going on? Ending with Jesus causing havoc in the temple and the little kids cheering in the background one person mentioned, I didn't say this last time, but one person mentioned between services, it also sounds like Jesus is riding two animals. It's just weird. And if you were there, you'd be thinking, who does this guy think he is? And in fact, that seems to be the central question and point of our text today. And it's the question we want to keep before ourselves. Who does this guy think he is? And what's significant about what he's doing? You see, coming out of chapter 20, we find ourselves walking with Jesus and a large crowd. We're on our way to Jerusalem. They're on their way for Passover, one of the largest religious festivals in which Jews would pilgrimage there. During this time, the city would swell exponentially. People would be cheering, singing songs of deliverance, and expecting it to happen again. And if you were around last year, well, now two years ago, for the Royals parade, you might know what I'm talking about. Just a mass of people. And Matthew picks up the story nearing Jerusalem at the town of Bethphage near the Mount of Olives. From this approach, they're actually above the city, looking down on it. From here, the view is breathtaking. Jesus has been to the city many times before, but here and now, inside of the city and the temple, he stops. This time, he sees what awaits him, the very end for which he's come. And for this special moment, what does he need? He needs a donkey. That's right, a donkey. So he sends his two disciples out to find one tied up and bring it to him, a donkey hijack, as it were. I mean, who does this guy think he is? (laughs) But Jesus is so purposeful and Matthew, Matthew wants us to know it. You see, long ago, God had promised King David that a king would come who would establish the kingdom forever. And the prophet Zechariah writes about that glorious day. And it's this passage from Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew directs us towards. Say to the daughter Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here we find Jesus purposely fulfilling the Old Testament Openly declaring his rightful kingship. It's no longer a secret. And yet, a donkey seems a little underwhelming, right? I mean, there are other prophecies concerning the Messiah. Like the virgin birth. That was impressive. Jesus, do something like that again. I mean, kings don't ride donkeys, do they? Especially not the Messiah, the one true king, right? And I have to admit, since I've been studying this passage, I can't get that scene from Disney's Aladdin out of my head. You know, Prince Ali, glorious he, Ali Ababa. He's brought into town on elephants, attendants, dancing, all praising the greatness of this prince. He goes through the streets and is welcomed to the sultan's palace. Now that's how a king makes an entrance. But that's just it. He wasn't like other kings. He wasn't just another prophet or another warrior for the people. You see, for us, Jesus claiming to be king seems like a unique event. But for that day, it wasn't as unique as you might think. The people were anxious for new leadership. And at each Passover, they sang these songs calling out for God's deliverance. Years of political subjugation by foreign nations, the Greeks, and then Romans— Class conflicts and an eroding religious, cultural, and social structure had people desperate for a savior. And not just anyone, but a strong leader to come and take charge, to fight for those who felt they weren't being heard. You see, 200 years before Jesus, a man named Mattathias began a revolution for the people, he killed the idolaters. And cried out in the towns, "Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant, come, follow me." And then he and his sons left all they had to fight for this cause of liberating the people. His son Judas, called Maccabeus, took back the holy city, Jerusalem. He put the city back under Jewish control, and he cleansed the temple from pagan defilement. And this family ruled like kings and priests. For nearly 100 years, until Rome came a-knocking and conquered the city. And even closer to Jesus' time, you know when the calendar switches from B.C. to A.D., no less than three different men came aspiring to be Israel's king. And for each of them, their principal goal, overthrow the Romans and the Jewish aristocracy by force. So Jesus coming to be king isn't that as new as you think. But this is the expectation and the cry of the crowds that we hear in Matthew 21. That's why when we see them spreading their cloaks on the ground and cutting branches from trees to spread on the road before him, they're rejoicing about and pleading with the Lord's anointed. But Jesus is different than the previous leaders. And that's why he points to Zechariah. Here's what the Lord's true anointed looks like. And while these other leaders have used force and lust for power, Jesus enters the city on a donkey. And what should shock us, and definitely shocked them, is that Jesus isn't the sort of king they were expecting. So who does this guy think he is? Well, he claims to come as the king of humility, a humble king. And if you were a Roman citizen in this day, it would sound like an oxymoron. A humble king? What about honor? You see, the Romans had this ceremony reserved for their greatest leaders. It's called the Roman Triumph, usually reserved for military commanders as they returned victorious from battle. They'd be arrayed with a crown of laurels, dressed in a fine robe, and carted around the city on a four-horse chariot as the commoners cheered and singed their praise. Suetonius, who lived in this first-century time, and was a historian, describes the way for upward mobility was the Roman triumph. There's little higher honor. How do you gain a following? How do you gain the ear of the powerful? The triumph. And in comparison to this, Jesus' triumphal entry looks like a farce. You see, he's the king who prizes humility over honor, sacrifice over force. As one commentator puts it, Matthew thus emphasizes what surely Jesus' symbolic was designed to show, that he is the Messiah indeed, but a Messiah whose triumphal route leads to suffering and humiliation, not a show of force. Jesus came to establish his kingdom through service and mercy. And it was this path characterized by humility that changed the world. You see, the path of humility is the true way to the good life. In Jesus, we find a king who deserves all honor and praise, yet marks his royal kingship by a donkey, not a chariot, by a cross, not a throne. And I don't know about you, but I can't hear this enough, both as a call for personal humility and to look forward in those I follow. I mean, what kind of leader do you want? I know what I want. I want the one who's forceful, the one who would sooner fight for what I want, I wanna follow the guy wielding the sword on the chariot, not the weirdo on the donkey. And really, you know, if I'm being honest, I'd rather be on the chariot. It sounds comfortable. And I'm sure we've all at one time or another practiced our chariot wave. But this isn't the path that Jesus calls us to follow. Rather, we're to follow him, and it looks like a, more like a cross. Only then does glorification come, Only then is God's power magnified, not in the taking by force, but our faithful presence in the place God has put us. Who does this guy think he is? He's the king of humility. And as this humble king comes into the city, we hear the cry of the people, don't we? You can feel it. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this is a song from Psalm 118. A common set of psalms, songs sung during this Passover festival. As we discuss during Advent, we see how the psalms are ever-present on the lips of God's people. The Jews longing for a coming Messiah. They've been traveling with this guy who seems to act like the promised one of God. So maybe this time... They're singing a little louder, ready for this salvation to come. That's why when we hear the words Hosanna, which means something like salvation is here, or as a plea, save now, we feel them pushing Jesus. And sometimes we can too quickly spiritualize this, right? We can assume that the people, well, they're crying out for the salvation of their souls. But if you're a Jew in that day, and the Romans are taking more money than they should, when the elite hoard the resources, you can't vote, you can't worship the way your fathers once did, the salvation you want is for someone to come into Jerusalem and kick some people around. Show them they can't push the little guy. And so you hear that as Jesus comes into the city and you feel them pushing him, right? And when we look at Jesus' entry, the scene becomes even more dramatic. Coming from Bethphage, as we've already talked about, with the crowds, Jesus likely would have entered right above the temple area between the pools of Bethesda and the pool of Israel. On his right, you have the Antonia Fortress and on his left, the temple. The Antonia Fortress was the place of Rome's power, their military power. And later on in Acts, we'll read that this is the place that Paul would later be held prisoner. So on his right, the barracks, of the Roman soldiers on his left, the place of sacrifice. And you feel the crowds pushing him. No doubt the crowds expect this wannabe king, like the ones that come before him, to confront the Romans, to rally all who have come for the Jewish Passover and head toward the fortress. It's no wonder Matthew claims that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? they were nervous. Who is this man? And what's he getting ready to do? But Jesus doesn't head toward the fortress, does he? Rather the temple. And as Matthew tells it, between Jesus's entry and going to the temple, there's no stop. He wants us to read these stories together because we can feel the crowds. Jesus comes to town with this cacophony of voices, crying out for salvation. Save now, O son of David. And he heads straight towards the temple where forgiveness is found. Jesus will answer their calls for salvation, but first not in the way they expect. And in fact, they'll get more than they bargained for. Because what does salvation from Rome matter? when their relationship with God is broken. The Christian writer N.T. Wright describes these mismatched expectations this way. You see, the bad news is that the crowds are going to be disappointed. But the good news is that their disappointment, though cruel at the surface level, deep down, Jesus' arrival at this great city is indeed the moment when salvation is dawning. And we can resonate with this. Because people notoriously turn to God when they want something very badly. That's who we are. Give us peace now. Pay my bills and hurry. My job is terrible. or I just need a job. Or perhaps the most common prayer of all, help. But once you invite Jesus to help, he will, of course, no doubt. But you'll also get more than you imagined. Because the root of our problem is that it's much worse than our current situation. You see, the good life that God wants for us is first made possible through the king who came to save us. Who does this guy think he is? Well, he is the king of salvation. He is the king that has come to save. So he enters the temple, the very place where God's people come for forgiveness, and he causes a little havoc. Let's look again as Matthew writes. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And this act was scandalous. And it's probably even a little jarring to how we usually think of Jesus. He comes to the most holy site, the place where people come to meet with God, and he turns it upside down. I mean, who does this guy think he is, right? He's not simply the king of salvation, but the king of salvation for any who would come to him. He's the king for all. And he quotes in his in his cry, he quotes two Old Testament passages that make his point and justify his actions. First, Isaiah chapter 56 speaks about foreigners and outsiders, to which the Lord says, These I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The whole purpose of God's temple and the blessings Israel received was that they were to be a light and a blessing to all nations and people. But instead, had become a place where the blind and the lame, you know, those people considered cursed by God were excluded. It had become a place where the poor were exploited and the Gentiles, us, were the enemies. So who was left at the temple? Well, the robbers, of course. And here Jesus is drawing on Jeremiah 7, which says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, And go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, putting these two passages together, Jesus is saying, "You look, You restrict these outcasts as though they aren't worthy. But look at yourselves. You've made my house a hideout for your duplicitous life. You go and do as you like and then come here expecting deliverance without transformation. You treat my grace like a commodity to be bought and sold. And you keep it from the very people desperate, the very people hungry. We ask, what makes Jesus angry? It's when the love and the grace of God is cheapened. When it's treated like a commodity to be bought and sold and hoarded away from those who desperately need it. It's when God's house is used to ignore sin. Who does this guy who causes a mess think he is? Yes, the king who brings salvation, but also the one who gives it freely to any who would come to him. Because he's the king for all. The Lord of salvation for any who would come to Him. It doesn't matter who you are, but only who He is. So it's no wonder that right after He cleanses the temple, it's the blind and the lame and the children who come to the temple seeking healing from Jesus. While the priests and the scribes stand watching indignantly, the most vulnerable in society finally allowed to come into the temple. And meet with God Himself. And for some of us, this story might sound uncomfortably familiar. How easily can we treat church this way? I can engage in shady practices at work during the week, I can turn to pornography to escape my problems, I don't need to care for my neighbor or those who don't look like me, but as long as I make it to church on Sunday, I'm all right. but no amount of church attendance or successful New Year's resolutions can make up for, pay for, or atone for who we are and what we've done. Only in Jesus Christ do we find salvation. And thank God that he comes for the sick, the sick in sin, the cursed, and the self-righteous among us. Because we desperately need his love and correction. So this first day of Jesus' last week ends a bit anticlimactic. This triumphal entry ends in a quiet return. We find that the crowds, when directly asked who they think this man is, only call him a prophet. And by the end of the day, with their expectations shattered, it's only the children who are left to praise Jesus' name. As we've seen in Matthew It's the children who have the right sort of faith. And here it's the children who speak the truth. And in the end, Jesus just goes back to Bethany for the night. The king who comes with a parade isn't offered a place in Herod's palace because there's no room for a king like this in Jerusalem. There never has been. And we're left asking, is there room for a king like this with us? We see who he thinks he is, but what do we think? One of my college professors tells a story from my undergraduate days, and I want to end our time together by retelling it. When I was in school, he taught a class called the Bible in American Culture, and it was designed to explore the way the Bible is portrayed throughout our various cultural texts. One session, a student brought in an analysis of his favorite film, maybe you've seen it, Braveheart. He was even dressed for the part. If you can imagine, a college student Painted face, wild hair, Scottish kilt. I I guess that's any sporting event. But here in the middle of the presentation, at the end of which he raises his sword, and he says, so like William Wallace, we Christians must raise the sword of the Spirit and carry on the battle of bringing freedom in Christ to all. As my professor tells it, the air reeked of testosterone. Testosterone. But once the student settled down, he asked the presenter, what made you think Wallace's death was a sacrifice like Jesus's? Now, if you've seen the movie, the answer seems obvious, right? Wallace was betrayed by a friend. He was beaten, imprisoned by a wicked ruler, offered a drink to ease the pain, and strapped to a cross, carted through town while people mocked him. Yet, Wallace got what was coming to him, right? He was a murderer, and the law caught up to him. we don't really know the circumstances of Wallace's death, but the director made decisions that want us to see him as a Christ figure, as a Messiah. So the question was then posed, what would it have looked like if Wallace did sacrifice himself like Christ? To which a student sarcastically answers, well, he probably would have gone around to all the towns preaching peace and telling them to love their enemies. But we all know that doesn't work. at which point silence fell. Because we would all rather have a Messiah who overcomes and kills his enemies. We would all rather have a king of force than humility. Wouldn't we? We would all rather have a king who takes on the Antonia Fortress and conquers the Romans rather than turn to the temple and confront the sin in your heart and mine. The one who challenges our lust for power and the powerful who points out the way we hide our sin behind a self-righteous act and exclude those who desperately, desperately need the love of God. Lord knows I'm guilty of this. But our king, Jesus, came humble to the point of death. A king for the salvation of all who would come to him. This is who Jesus thinks he is. And the one he wants us to see and to follow. So will we follow this humble king riding on a donkey? We hear who Jesus thinks he is, but how will we respond? What sort of Lord do we believe he is? And will we, with faith like little children, continue to follow this king to his triumphant cross? Let's pray.